0: Okay, welcome back, collaborators. We are here again at What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, Architect. It really is a pleasure to be here again with you. Thank you for carving out some time in your day to listen to this podcast where we discuss what it feels like to collaborate with an architect and what is involved in realising an architectural project. We talk through the creative thinking behind the design of spaces and places. In this episode, I had the pleasure to talk to Adam Russell, architect from Saltbush Project. Our conversation took place in a shed that he designed that sits to the rear of his property on the south coast of New South Wales, just outside of Sydney. Now I was excited to talk to Adam, but equally excited to take the show on the road, so to speak. This was the first episode I recorded outside of my own little studio. Adam is an architect, And runs his own practice but he also teaches, is often invited to speak at conferences and webinars. Adam loves to surf, take photos, build literally on the tools construction and work on his garden and more recently developed a renewed passion for playing music. I've known Adam for about five or six years now and I'm grateful to call him a colleague, a mentor and a friend. Our common interest is architecture and that is how we met. However, the conversations we have around the discipline, be they ideas, wins, losses, inspiration, etc., often occurs in between sets while surfing. Yes, in between waves. And you will hear a version of that play out in this episode. We talk through Adam's experience studying architecture whilst working part-time, the great firms he worked for and projects he worked on before starting his own practices. Note the emphasis on the S in practices, because before Saltbush, Adam had three practices and then a brief stint in corporate where a larger firm bought his smaller practice. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. And now with his life and business partner, Susie Pickles, he runs the very community-oriented Saltbush Projects. It's a great episode. I look forward to sharing it. But before we get into it, I want to confess to two if you like, typos. I'm not sure if it was linked to the excitement of interviewing someone on the road or something else, but I incorrectly asked if the shed we were in was a granny flat. You can have a chuckle at my expense when that comes up. I also incorrectly referred to the work Adam and his partner have done around the house as marinettes. That is not the correct term, I'm glad that Adam didn't correct me then and there or or pull a face as I said the word marionette, but the, let's call them interventions Adam has done around the house are not in fact stringed puppets, which is what a marionette is. That would be an interesting look and I dare say that Adam would be up to the challenge of making that work, but that is not the correct term. So again, when you hear it, have a chuckle at my expense. Instead, I should describe the interventions as small alterations or additions that add to the experience of the property little parts adding to the benefit of the whole, if you like. Anyway, enough from me. Let's get into the episode. You are listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark, architect today talking with architect Adam Russell from Salt Bush Projects. Okay, here we are. Thank you, Adam Russell, for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to be here and I am on the road for the first time in this podcast series. I'm here in Adam's
1: would we call it a granny flat? A granny flat. Well, it doesn't have any plumbing. <laughs> so if it's a really old granny who's used to bedpans and right.
0: No, but it's, it's an extraordinary shed and space. There's an impressive quiver of surfboards. I say impressive, like I know a good surfboard from a bad surfboard, but there is a quiver and true to architectural form. There's a beautiful finished, would you call it polished or? No, ground. Ground. But it's exquisite. Ground concrete floor. Ground concrete floor on a on a muggyish day with what have we got? Onshore winds, southeast. Southerly winds. Southerly winds. Important as surfers that also practice architects, architecture or architects that also surf to talk about weather conditions, wave conditions. But I'm really excited to be here and Adam and I can talk about so many things at length we're going to talk a lot about architecture, but Adam is someone who's got so many pursuits and so many interests. And what I'd love to get into is how those interests keep the fire ignited for Adam's passion towards architecture. And just to talk about this surfing thing for a brief moment in the overlap with architecture, you remember that we met the first time we met was that interview when Adam was in corporate for a little while and, A common friend, Joanne Lewis, who runs Supple Design Studio, great architect. You've known him for longer than me, but I've talked with him, etc. He set us up. I love this expression when people set you up with an architect for a job. (laughs) And we went in for this interview. And I reckon within three to five minutes of the interview, there was another associate there. It was clear that I was too senior for the job,
1: but we had an interest in surfing. (laughs)
0: And that became the interview. And so it was
1: an opportunity just to get into our passions rather yeah. than <laughs> Yeah.
0: And and I don't know, the sky's been the limit ever since. We surf together. We now have a common interest in playing music together. And probably repeatedly throughout this interview we're going to, you know, go off on a tangent to talk about surfing. But I'd like to, Adam, go right to the beginning in architecture and maybe even to an extent in surfing. Did you surf before you started studying? Like, have you been surfing for that long?
1: Yeah, I started surfing when I was probably 10 or 11. And I'd been asking my parents for a fiberglass surfboard for a while, a couple of years. And out of the blue, my grandmother, who lived in Queensland on the Sunshine Coast, rocked up with a surfboard for (laughs) me for Christmas. Um, And, you know, my mother's jaw dropped (laughs) too dangerous what's going on it was my father's mother who gave me the surfboard you're in Uh, the northern beaches yeah that's where you lived no no i grew up in hunters hill on the western shores of the harbor yep north shore just Yep. but um yeah i'd catch the bus with my surfboard once i was old enough to how um, long a
0: commute was that
1: Around two hours, wow. two buses. I'd catch a bus into the city and then wait at Hyde, at our uh, Wynyard Park and jump on the Northern Beaches bus. Wow. Um, sometimes I'd get to the beach before sunrise. So I'd wow. be on, I'd be on like <laughs> shift workers and binge drinkers would be on their <laughs> way home. And I'd be there on the bus with a surfboard and a mate and he, he had his surfboard and we'd go to um, either DY if the wind was blowing south or Long Reef if the wind was blowing northeast. Wow. And that was a few years of that before I got my license and then such commitment. Yeah, I don't I was a very bad surfer at the time. So I don't know what the bug was. Maybe it was escaping a very busy household with right. lots of younger siblings and chaos and just five siblings, four siblings. Five younger siblings. Yeah. 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 And just getting to the ocean and sitting out there beyond the waves looking at the horizon was quite a reset. And I think that was probably something I learned really early on that was good for me two-hour commute from Hunters Hill would you do that every weekend or every other yeah probably one in two or one in three wow. weekends wow yeah occasionally I get a lift with mum or dad but like that was a half day commitment for them and they're obviously busy did the family ever move closer to northern beaches no mum and dad are in the same seven bedroom oh. house that we all grew up in wow <laughs> um, wow too much sentimental value to leave fair enough to them. fair enough yeah.
0: So, okay, I, d- I didn't appreciate from 10 and the two-hour commute. I thought I was bad having to walk, if I wanted to walk, 30, 40 minutes from Malabar to Maribur Beach through the Rifle Range. It's nothing compared to two hours. But at what point in your teenage years or later school years did you say, I'm interested in studying architecture? Do you remember that
1: moment? Yeah, I do. Um, so I did technical drawing at high school, and I think even just like selecting that as an elective. I was already thinking, I love drawing. Um, I guess I love designing. I was sort of organizing spaces, you know, forever rearranging my room and setting up the little music corner and things like that. And um, I just naturally jumped into technical drawing. I was quite good at it, enjoyed it, got good feedback from teachers and peers. Um, I also did woodwork and really enjoyed that. So very sort of tectonic um pursuits and probably like a year after starting technical drawing I'm like yeah architecture's something I think I might want to do at university I did work experience in year 10 at a industrial designer um Nielsen design they're called in Hunters Hill so down the road nice and they they designed those amazing um uh traffic buttons for pedestrians to cross at a walk signal you know the magnet ones that you really feel like you've pushed it oh, properly yeah. and it's a really nice sort of lozenge shape wow so that is I nose so and i remember i the ones remember the one time when there was anything i else. remembered the ones that came before that which was a tiny oh, little black circle button with a rubber seal and yeah. you never knew if you'd properly pressed yeah. it so you yeah. sat there pressing it all the time yeah so for a moment i was like oh it could be industrial design because that was pretty a good week of work experience but nah, i got back onto architecture not long after that
0: that's so interesting because you've run your own practices. Did you ever have students that you had for work experience in that time? Yeah, I've had students. Because it's, it's, yeah. it's, in my experience, it's the hardest uh, work experience job to give a good
1: insight as to how fun and exciting
0: architecture is. Yeah. It's really hard. I think a that. lot
1: of, when I've had work experience students, I've often had them just shadow me for the yeah. week. Yeah. Say, okay, you're coming to every meeting. I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do if I'm briefing other staff member, you're next to me. So not so much sit in the corner and do the best you can on designing something or yep. detailing something or whatever, but more, um, follow around. Yeah. Maybe a bit more of an apprenticeship where someone's beside you rather than yeah. giving the shitty job in the corner. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I, um, I, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So you were hell bent on this pursuit and some people, I remember I had a friend at school who was very good at technical drawing and he said if you're good at technical drawing you're going to excel at architecture. Almost to him it was binary. And he did this because you know mates at school always trying to say mate you you don't you don't have the skill set to be able to do this. I didn't do technical drawing and I found that a little bit overwhelming in those early years to really be precise and do that style of drawing. Um, Anyway, so he did that and that led to that interest. And then you went to UTS, yeah? That's where
1: you studied, University of Technology, Yeah, Sydney. yeah. I was. I looked at the three unis in Sydney, Sydney, New South and UTS. And I got an ATAR that would have gotten me into Sydney, but I was really keen on the apprenticeship model at, that UTS was running at the time yep. where you sort of where it's part you have time. a four-day-a-week job in yep. a practice yep. and you have to have that to get through each year. Yeah. Um, and then you work your ass off one day and one evening a week in face-to-face teaching and then you do all your uni work after dark (laughs) and on weekends it sounds so unsustainable do you uh i think it permanently changed my metabolism and my kind of like literally there were physical outcomes after six years of that that i i'm still trying to throw
0: it was still six years
1: yeah it was a six-year degree right um just bachelor of architecture no bachelor of arts at the three year mark, like the other degrees had. Yeah. So there are a lot of, a lot of my fellow students got to like third year or fourth year and they're like, I don't want to be an architect, but I've got no out, no easy out here to have a qualification unless I stick through all six years. Yeah. So there are a lot of jaded people in the, in the degree, um, because of that structure, I think.
0: And who are you working for part-time the same company through the, de- oh, the degree? no, I
1: started with, um, McConnell, Smith and Johnson and Chris, uh, sorry, Peter Johnson, who's Chris Johnson's father, Chris Johnson being the government, government architect. Yep. Um, uh, that was a practice in Surrey Hills and it was awesome, I was the print boy. Yeah, you're still in a, living back, at home in Hunters Hill? Yeah, I lived at home during yeah. that job. So I'd commute into Surrey Hills and there are about 50 people in the office and I got to know everybody as the sort of runner, yep. like doing little tasks and helping and then In addition to doing all of the menial work, uh, a guy called Mark Willett, who was probably my first architectural mentor and like a bit of a hero, beautiful hand-drawn drawings. He did a lot of hand illustrations. He, I guess he and I got on well and I started helping him on design competitions, um, doing like, I was quite good at sketching, so I'd, I'd do sketches beside him and for him to help brief other staff so i was kind of doing design work already in that office at Mm. a very limited level when i was super junior
0: like what second year third year uni
1: um yeah i think in second year i worked on we had a commission to do the master plan for lunar park to renew lunar park oh wow and and that was a bizarre brief like you don't really learn that in architecture school how to design a fun park Mm. and a lot of Purist architects would be like, oh, this is just pastiche, mm. you know, f- mm. fake facades mm. with dumb boxes behind them. But we actually designed the roller coaster. Mark and I designed the wow. roller coaster as a spatial problem solving exercise because it's such a tight site in against Harry Sidler's mm. little cliff mm. buildings. And um, working with Mark, we worked out a, a method of modeling that in a cardboard model. And um, that became a sort of working method we could unpack and get the engineers to give the sign off on where the rail of the roller coaster went and whether. You made a cardboard model of the roller coaster. Well, the actual track of the roller coaster, I scored a line in foam core and put um, acetate, you know, that clear plastic that you put on the cover of yep. a report, put, dropped that into the scored line in the foam core, and then we drew with a marker the ups and downs of the roller coaster. Right. So we resolved where it would fit in plan and where yep. structure could hit the ground. Yep. And then the ups and downs, looking at the height issues with Harry Seidler's building, that was a bit sacrosanct. And then um, you know how it, how it meshed in with existing trees and buildings. And then for the engineers, we pulled out the acetate and flattened it out into a 2D elevation where they could tell us how the momentum of the carriage would run nice. with all the ups and downs. Yeah, it was quite fun. Sounds really very fun. analog, very very analog. Uh, engineers were in Germany. The roller coaster, best roller coaster. Is it a specific engineer that does roller coaster It roofing? was. I, I can't recall who they were. Yeah. that was like a long time ago now. Yeah, thirty yeah. years ago. Yeah, more. And it's the one that got realized. Yeah, it got realized. Got did, built. You, did you yeah. win the project? Yes, you had. Oh yeah, we already. That was we were commissioned at that right. point. That right. wasn't a comp, and um, it was built. And then there was a court case. Harry yeah. Sidler still didn't like it, even yeah. though we did some did uh, best. consulting with him. Yeah. And um, there was a court case where half of Milson's Point went against it with yeah. Harry's financial backing and it got dismantled. Right. I think it's been relocated somewhere. Right. Oh. Anyway, we jumped straight into architecture there, didn't we? <laughs> Absolutely. And we're going to stay that way for a little while. <laughs> Watch
0: out. No segues. We're going to have a word from our sponsor, which is some surf uh, uh, yeah, tangent. But... So obviously the roller coaster Lunar Park was a little bit of, uh, it was an unusual project, I'm making an assumption here, relative to what you might have normally done in the office. Like did the practice mainly do houses, commercial?
1: No, they were, they were sort of one of the main practices in Australia, doing schools, right, hospitals and prisons. Right. And you worked on all of those in your time there? I didn't do much on the prisons. Yep. Um, I worked on the children's hospital at Westmead. Um, a big extension. I think it was a $50 million project back then. It was quite a big project. Oh, Adam's got
0: (laughs) an important business call here. I should have explained that during the recording, please put your phones to silent. I haven't done that for mine either.
1: Okay. Sorry about that. No, you're right.
0: You're right. All good. So, uh, the Westmead extension. Oh yeah. And.
1: Yep. Um, and yeah, I worked on uh, Randwick Boys High School, but I was, just, I was just sort of helicoptered in for bits and pieces yeah, and not, yeah. not really driving the project or had did, a specific role.
0: In did that. you find the balance between really engaging with, because it's really a two-part education, isn't it? It's you're studying uh, on an academic level all the things that pertain to architecture architectural history and theory and structures environment you're balancing science and art and really working through things from the ground up compared to work which not to take away from anything from the practice but there is a day-to-day requirement to deal with some of the more let's call them stringent realities of realizing architecture did you find the two were a great complement was there ever a point where you're like i really don't want to go to uni this week because i'm really
1: enjoying what i'm doing at work or vice versa it was so good. I think by the end of first year, I knew exactly what a career in architecture or a life in architecture would be like. Nice. Because I'd met so many great and challenging people in practice. Yep. And seen, I'd even done all-nighters in the practice on design competitions. So I knew the culture of an office and I'd seen all my friends and their offices and the different cultures. So I think, um, yeah, that was quite good that by the end of first year, I'm like, yeah. I'm kind of into this. Nice. I enjoy it. And I know when I get spat out at the end of university, um, you know, I'm just in a niche that I'm quite happy with and
0: Did like you find empowers me?
1: me a bit and Sorry. gives me sort of, um, I don't know, good, the good vibes. Nice. I like that. <laughs> That's a good
0: success story. Yeah. I, I teach first year uh, have taught architecture I know you have as well and my experience in first year was a bit, a little bit crushing I didn't know anyone when I went to university that had chosen from school to do architecture which I think is actually a good thing yep. to reset but the four close friends I've made all dropped out by the end of first year oh wow the attrition yeah, in first year right. for yeah. UNSW anyway was huge was it big
1: at UTS I can't recall yeah but I can tell a quick story about my son who right. enrolled in architecture <laughs> last year and um postponed that course right. at the start of second semester right um because it was too it consumed. was intense for him yeah. um I think he had a sort of tumultuous high school yeah uh, sort of stage through high school and I think he was he'd moved out of home and was supporting himself and I think he just was um enjoying working, earning money yeah. and, you know, setting up a household on his own, that yeah. sort of autonomy. Yeah. And to do well in architecture probably takes, takes a bit of the thunder out of that Yeah, just other, on, other part of life. <laughs> just on that note, were you surfing as much during your degree? Um, no, I, I had a, for the second half of my degree, I lived in a share house with two other guys that were studying in my year. So that house was like, um, yeah, head, heads down, get the work done, yep. and then party very hard as soon as so uni, uni, uni break was on. Yeah. Um, and one of my mates there was a surfer, and we would just scurry on down to Maroubra for a surf when we found a little moment in yeah. our busy sort of schedule. Yeah. Often it was like a Sunday Arvo or Yeah. 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 So, so you, about once a week. Sure. The point being
0: that it's a very all-consuming course. Even you know, obviously balancing pretty much full-time
1: work and part-time oh, yeah. uni, there's not a lot yeah. of
0: time left.
1: Yeah, I'd, for much. A else. normal a normal week, I'd be going to bed at one o'clock every single night because I'd be working on uni work. for yeah. the for the you know that weeks. But the point studios. that I, I think
0: the important thing to note is, it sounds like you were loving it. You I was loving it. Yeah. yeah so yeah, at it. at
1: some point in the degree, you you went to another practice. Yeah. The then um. I had a tutor, uh, Kim Cristani, Yep. and her practice was called Order Architects, and she offered me a job halfway through the semester, and moved to her practice in um, Parramatta. Which is such a great feeling as a student.
0: You've done well, and not only have you done well, here's my card, give me a call for a job. It, it
1: really feels special. Yeah, yeah, special. And she was good mates with Mark Willett, who um, I was working for at the time. Yep. and. Um, McConnell Smith, it it was a bit of a recession in architecture. McConnell Smith and Johnson had shrunk from 50 people down to about 15. Whoa! And I was still there because I was so cheap probably. And they needed someone to do their legwork. Um, but I, you know, the writing was on the wall, but it was not very good times. Um, and then Kim offered me a job and I shifted across to order architects. Nice. How long were you there? uh another three and a half years
0: still in the degree
1: or overlap with yeah graduation? And I, was, I was still in the degree for three years and then did another six months um after i graduated and then i went overseas for two years right which odyssey. i think i
0: think i think it's almost mandatory or in, like it sounds a bit harsh but in Australia, obviously we've got so many great places and obviously great work going on, but so many of the people we looked at for history or theory or precedence throughout our degree were half a world away. Yeah. So I, I certainly appreciated my time as soon as I could going away, I, I didn't do two years, and looking back, it would have been nice to do two years, to really immerse yourself in that because it seemed like you were immersed in the profession and the practice and the study of architecture five days a week. And then to go overseas and say, okay, this is what we've learned in Australia. This is what I gathered in Australia. Let's
1: park that. And you went, Mm. where did you go? Uh, I went to Europe and traveled around Western Europe for six months in a combi van. Did you take a board? No surfboard. (laughs) I swam swam in the sea a few times, but no surfing for two years, really. Really cold? Uh, yeah, it was really cold up in, um, Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Racing. (laughs) But... You're absolutely right. When you have looked at history lectures and books for six years and think you understand architecture through those mediums, to actually go to a European city and see both the incredible old buildings that were built, you know, before the light bulb was invented, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then also to see buildings like Ronchamp, uh, like modernist buildings in their context, absolutely transform my appreciation of great architecture. And I thought I knew it through, you know, doing reasonably well at university yeah. and studying diligently, but until you're in those spaces and see them contextualized, even in the context of the culture that yeah. they exist in now and, um, you know, has evolved from when those buildings were built, just amazing. And some buildings, I, like Ronchamp's, an example that I didn't, did not like that building through what I'd learned at university, right. but it was a profound experience to visit it. It was much smaller and more intimate than I thought It had a very human scale. Um, it sits perched on a hill in the landscape, but with a few trees skirting around one edge. It just had the, all these beautiful relationships that you can't see in black and white yeah. plates in a history book.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the troubles of architecture, isn't it? Our communication means, for better or worse, Is an abstraction of reality. And you can completely appreciate with every new client, I'm sure you get this, you're trying to win them over uh, with a drawing that's orthogonal, it's in plan. No one experiences the world necessarily in plan. And you're trying to describe this idea of atmosphere Mm. and experience of light, of scale, of texture. And even then, when you draw it in 3D or make a model of the roller coaster, you have to experience it, you have to go to it. Do you remember? the, the first time
1: you went to Ronchamp, what that was like? Yeah, I do. Yeah. We arrived, um, and it was shrouded in mist and you couldn't see it until you're about 15 meters away. And even, even that was just radically different to the expectation you have when yeah. you're approaching. Yeah. Uh, it's hiding and, from and, you. It's hard to have this sort of monolithic white building. Almost. It was almost like the mist atomized into a building. Nice. So it was almost lightweight it was almost like hovering in the mist didn't have that heavy grounded feeling um and then were you by yourself or well I was because the mist was so thick right. I was with my two mates but we all sort of scattered in right. our different ways right. and then found each other in I don't know little chapels and things inside <laughs> um but yeah no it was amazing and then I think we we camped overnight in our combi van on a hill nearby oh no nice. I came back the next day on a really like harsh, strong sunshine kind of day. And it was all about shadow play and Mm. and deep reveals. And yeah, just had all these nuances that, yeah, like, like I said, you don't, you don't learn in the history books. You have to be there. I love that story.
0: I also think it's important to note, we didn't mention this for those people that aren't familiar with this building. Ronchamp is one of Le Cabousier, a well celebrated, you know, arguably if you're studying architecture and you don't know who Le Cabousier is, you're not studying architecture, but One thing about Adam, I mentioned the shed, and uh, I'll go into a little bit more of this later, is I feel like Adam truly talks the talk insofar as that design ideas and interests and passions that Adam has plays out in his life. I mean, I'm staring, looking at his beautiful home that's got little sort of, what would you call them, almost marinettes or something of tidbits of little small changes you've made to the house reflecting a design idea that you might have had either on your project or otherwise. And it's realized it's here, you know, you could say to a client instead of me drawing this detail or showing you a photo of something, come around and look at it at my house in situ. Yeah. That's how I practice now. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. But just on the Ronchamp thing, there's a tattoo that Adam recently got, which is, describe it for us.
1: Oh, it's, um, it's a motif that Corbusier designed for, um, how do you pronounce it, the, an Indian city that he designed? Oh, yeah, yeah. Chandigarh? I don't know. <laughs> I should know. <laughs> we'll, I've got We'll, to. <laughs> we'll, we'll get, um, we'll get fact-checked on this And it's a motif of an open hand, which is a peace gesture, um, but also it's abstracted enough to look like a dove, a peace dove, mm. and it's about sort of peace and care. And I find a lot of Korb's work very confronting yep. and um, very rectilinear and autocratic almost. Yeah. But there's a soft side to him. And I think Ronchamp and this particular image um, are that soft side of Corb, And, you know, he was an amazing artist as well, like friend of Picasso's and doing uh, yeah. beautiful abstract paintings. And I think that's when he's in his flow state. Yeah. Like he was he was a product of the machine age. But like all humans, <laughs> we've got a soft side. Yeah. And I think that um, soft side of his I really love.
0: I love that you wear your heart on your sleeve or your leg in this sense. It's such a talking point. You could be out anywhere really and and your mission, your passion, the things you
1: love about architecture
0: are literally
1: on your leg there. And what a great talking point for people. What's that? There's another story behind the tattoo. Um, My son Jarrah, when he turned 18, said, I'm getting a tattoo on my birthday because once you're 18, you don't need your parents' permission. Can you give me a lift to the tattoo shop? And I was like, only if I can get one too. <laughs> I love it. And then I had to quickly scrounge around for something that I'd be happy with for the rest of my life. But nice. um, yeah, we um, spent a day together in the tattoo parlor. What did birthday. he get? He got a butterfly right. on his forearm, right. which is a homage to Kendrick Lamar, his favorite right. musician. Right. Nice. Yeah.
0: So we finished university and I'm interested... I didn't work. My, my degree wasn't part-time and I actually didn't work, even though it was a full-time degree, you could work one or two days. And I didn't start to do that until third or fourth year. And I'm interested how soon after graduation, you're working for Kim, but how soon after that did you say, I want to start my own practice, do my own thing? Was there another firm after Kim? Yeah, or was it... yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So I, when I left Order Architects, I traveled for two years. Yep. I worked in London for 18 months actually for, uh, Reed. I think they're called Reed now. Um, they were a really big firm with like head offices in three or four big cities in England. And, um, yeah, I worked there, got to know a lot of local Londoners became a bit of a, a Londoner. No surfing (laughs) Um, in London. Riding my bicycle around (laughs) still no surfing yet. Um, and then when I, Got back to Australia, I contacted Frank Stanisic, who was my tutor in final year. Um, we got on well and I did well in his subject. I contacted him and said, do you know anyone looking for work? And he said, can you come in on Monday? Nice. So I ended up working in his office. He was in partnership with Nick Turner, Stanisic Turner. Yep. So it was yep. Um, I was still pretty young in the context of the office, but I ended up being one of the main design architects on apartment buildings, which I'd learnt through some of my best teachers, Tony Caro, um, Peter, uh, Peter John Cantrell, yep. um, Phil Fallis. So I, I sort of just lucked straight into this job designing medium density housing in Sydney. Um, and the practice sort of grew around that and doubled in size while I was there. Then there was a a partnership breakup between Stanisic and Turner and they decided between themselves who got which staff. Oh no, wow. And the kids? most of the people I was working with on my teams went with Nick Turner, but I stayed with Frank Stanisic and I had another year working just with Frank and I was the only associate. He was the only director and we had maybe 10 or 12 people Um, and I was just running between three meetings a day wow briefing multiple teams in the office I was probably 26 27 wow Um, it was still fulfilling but quite stressful Mm -hmm. and there was obviously a hierarchy between Frank and I I couldn't sit down and say how are we going to shape our practice that works well for both of us? Cause yeah. it was his thing. Yeah. Um, and it got to the point where I wanted to do different things. I wanted, um, more people at my level in the business so I could, you know, have shared a load a little bit. Yep. And we had a few deep discussions about that and I ended up resigning, um, on the basis of, oh, it was very mutual. Like, yep. It's not, not really working for me. Practice looks like it's not going to evolve in the way that would work for me. Um, and I left there um, you know, in good spirits and started my own practice. But right around when that happened, we worked on a design competition for the master plan for Parramatta Road. I think 22 kilometres of yep. road from this. Sydney City Council all the way to Parramatta Council. It's around 2000? yeah around 2000 there are 11 councils that were our client in a group called imrock and then the department of planning were a sort of overarching client we did a design competition with croffie mcgregor coxall and a graphic communications unit called the revolution and we won the competition massive massive win i'd resigned two weeks before we found out we won the competition i'd done nearly all of the work the contribution from Stanisic Associates to the competition. Frank had not too much involvement and I went to Frank saying, Oh, funny how things turn. I'd love to remain involved. And I've got, you know, I've got quite a bit of knowledge of how the design came together. A lot of the ideas came through, um, me working around the table in collaborative moments. And he said, sure, let's split our third 50, 50. So I started my practice on a massive fee and a massive sort of commitment mm-hmm. on that like year and a half long urban design master planning project. And how much of that got realized? Just remind me. Nothing. <laughs> right. um, we, the fees ended up being astronomical, um, which would represent the amount of work we all did. Um, there were multiple reports, sort of half a ream of paper thick and a beautiful coffee table style book. I think I have that. About the vision of Parramatta, yeah. um, Parramatta Road and what it could be. And then I think the Minister for Planning at the time just said, it's a hot potato politically. There's an election this year. This report's going on the shelf. Right. And that's what that's what happened.
0: And it's still there. And
1: then over the, over the last 20 years since then, little bits of that have appeared in um, you know, up some of the up zoning we proposed and urban centres that were revitalised have appeared. Um, the West Connects component emerged in our master plan that was coupled with a new tram system and light rail system. So you can't build West Connects unless you pedestrianise the whole of the yep. corridor. Yep. Um, so it, it bits of it have arrived in a piecemeal fashion. A lot of them are just log- logic, but we had a, this big integrated master plan urban design solution which had um developers got up zoning on land but had to pay a level of tax to cover all of the infrastructure so it was always this sort of value capture on the density to give great public space and ground plane solutions right so you'd made the call to start your own thing off the back of this potentially big project that didn't no no, we did the competition and i just thought well that's done we're up against um MVRDV, um, the guys who did Fed Square in Melbourne, what were they called, Uh, Lab? Yeah, Lab, yep. Um, And we were just like, it's a real long shot. We've got Mm. this big cumbersome team, and they're all just like signature design practices. Um, So I was just like, well, that was fun. You know, (laughs) designing is fulfilling in and of itself, even if it's not realized for me. So that was like, well, that's done. Now, let's get back to me not being happy in this practice and working out (laughs) what my next steps are. And I resigned, and then, then we found out the news. Yeah.
0: But how soon after um, did the reality of it not going ahead or it being shelved after you started practice? Like, oh,
1: almost a year and a half. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, in that time, you would have got other projects.
1: Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think I had, I had that job and three house renovations when I started, which was a good, a good balance because on that Parramatta Road job, it, two meetings a week mm. um and design workshops every fortnight for a whole year and that was good cash flow mm. and you know keeping me busy and then I had other very small domestic renovations to Did fill Did you in have gaps. staff? Uh yeah. Yeah, I employed a student that I was teaching. No. <laughs> a bit of a pattern here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's uh, a cycle of life. <laughs> um Jason Fraser. And he worked with me for three years on on part of that. And um lots of other things
0: yeah and how because you didn't just have one person as so soon it got
1: to a point where you had a few staff like in so my practice then was called vim design right i wasn't registered right so i couldn't call myself adam the architect right uh so vim design um and i i think i only ever had one staff member but i had i worked in a collaborative space and lent on other people in there who you know if they were quiet and i was busy would just do a bit of horse trading on workflow stuff yeah yeah
0: so when did it go from vin to draw is that the next evolution
1: yeah that's the next evolution i met um john de in when i was living in erskineville with our young family uh in a terrace that we're renovating and he just sort of i think he almost i met him at a few city of sydney events and talks and things and then one day he just walked into the house while I was jackhammering a concrete slab. <laughs> I was like, oh, As I've been watching do. this. I'm John. <laughs> and um, we got on really well. Um, in hindsight, we're maybe too similar for a business partnership, but right. um, we're still really good mates now. Yep. We got on really well, and he was working at Hassle and not particularly happy. Tried to form a business with two other directors from there or partners, associates from there. That sort of didn't work, and then we trialed it for a few months, just working in the same space on the same projects. That went well, and then we merged into a practice that was called Draw, called Draw, Damanico yep. Russell Architecture
0: Workshop. Ah, oh, I love that! I love that incidental acronym that comes from
1: DRAW. people's last It's term. called a backronym.
0: Backronym. You find
1: a cool word, and then you make up the you make. <laughs> You, you find a cool acronym, DRAW, and then you make up the words to fit Oh, nice. Words a acronym. Acronym. <laughs> Love it.
0: Now, um, some of the projects you're working on at DRAW
1: include the Great Hall. Was that one of the biggest jobs you worked yeah, on? Yeah, that was definitely the biggest. Yeah. Biggest in terms of a multi-headed, super complex client and a really complex existing building that was structurally and spatially uh, very challenging, um, but also biggest in terms of budget. Yep and um yeah the pressure that put on the office and and us as individuals too
0: <laughs> and, and how special though as a student like did you find it special to go back so sorry just as a bit of background i said the great hall like everyone listening knows what i'm talking about there's only one great hall in all of the world the great hall at uts is what we're talking about was it special to go back to university as a professional and contribute to these spaces did you learn in the great hall did you have lectures it, in the it was hall?
1: special but also I'd already been teaching at UTS as a sessional tutor for probably 7 years right. at that point. So I don't, and and you know organized events that were in the Great Hall and um you know had a lot to do with the campus as well. Um so it wasn't like it wasn't like um, I'd been away from campus and then come back as an yeah. architect for an important yeah. space. Yeah. But um, it was exciting nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. And like, I love I love that Brutalist building, the UTS tower and podium and the site that was there. It's just so... Um, it's iconic. Raw and powerful, but also a very, uh, very human space. Mm. Like the scale of the interiors is so vast that there's almost a a subset of little villages that get mm. that form within it mm. with little constellations of couches and coffee tables and mm. coffee booths and meeting spaces. Um, so I, I really love that. And it was, it was sort of out of, fa- out of flavor to, to like that building at the time. Cause it was, you know, people called it the, the weet Tower. The Vegemite like Sandwich. That. Vegemite Sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the university's brief for the hall was great. It was, um, this is our great hall. Most universities have a great hall, which looks almost like a cathedral or a church in the landscape. Uh, ours is on level seven of a massive brutalist building. We want people to enter this space and feel like they've entered another world. Mm. So in a way it was a, an interior fit out refurb um, and the whole building's post-tension concrete, mm. which means um, it's strung tight like a guitar. Mm. And if you make a hole somewhere, you need to structurally resolve that entire floor plate and even um, the concrete coffers that all these tension cables hold in place. If you want to remove one, the weight of that is too heavy for the floor below to hold it up. So you need to backprop all the floors below to take the load. So it was this really complicated sort of Jenga puzzle structurally. Mm. Um, And we took a strategy of minimal intervention. So you could peel out our fit out and bring back the original sort of, um, qualities that were there. And that saved money compared to some of the other designs in that design competition that we won. Um, and also uh, like, I think the the university liked the strategy of it. Yeah. It's, it's, um, really interesting
0: and compelling geometrically, it's pretty complex. Mm. How did you resolve the geometry? Like so talking about models and roller yeah, coasters yeah, yeah. was this model making, was this
1: our our party, a little idea that then governed how we process the whole thing was the university's got a great hall that's a rectilinear concrete box. Most other universities have organic carved stone hall mm. like church like buildings in the landscape. We want to evoke some of those emotions in the interior, but using technologically contemporary and advanced methods. So materials, design, processing, documentation methods were all quite advanced, but we wanted the emotional feel of being in an organic stone Mm. building with stained glass. Mm. The stained glass for us was a ginormous LED screen. It was 25 to 20 metres long by four metres high. Um, And the sandstone was a composite aluminium panel with a a brass, or a copper um, finish on the front face. So we switched out the materials and technology, but tried to try to evoke that. Um, and then we worked on the design in very, like a very broad set of tools. We worked with students who we'd employed um, who were experts in rhino right. and grasshopper. So um, Frankie Layson was one of the guys instrumental in that um, programming, um, the sort of fractal geometry in ways that we could change. Cause we had the ceiling, the ceiling's 1200 unique triangular panels that fit together in this, almost like the scales on a reptile. Mm. Um, they move from being long skinny triangles to being fat squat triangles, to having lots of perforations, to having hardly any, and it's all, um, informed by acoustic performance, lighting, um fire sprinkler locations projector locations loudspeakers all these all these different things are all integrated and resolved in that single complex surface so grasshopper was great with that where we could say oh shit, the the new material we're looking at now because we couldn't afford pure copper has a limitation in width and height yep. so let's process that through grasshopper scripts and see the impact that has on the surface Uh, and then we'd get acoustic uh, feedback on how many perforations we needed and which parts of the surface needed a lot of absorption and which actually wanted less absorption for the sound to travel. So all of that stuff was sort of computationally run through the model and we'd look at versions. Then we'd build cardboard models to test how that feels spatially. Um, visual fly-throughs with lighting going on and off and things like that so also we came at it from all different angles nice it was hugely wasteful in time but incredibly (laughs) enjoyable (laughs) which i think is the crux of um a good design process absolutely sort of you run out of fee but um run into amazing
0: outcomes and it, it is an extraordinary outcome i It was just the other day, at one of the projects I'd worked on, and I I don't know if you get this, I'm interested in the context of Great Hall because it's so significant and that story was so special. There's a a, a project in Wawunga where I did a carport and I got there to just do last round of defects and I just sat in the calm of a space that you'd worked on, really feeling like I was chatting to an old friend or yeah. someone I'd known, well, in a way, sounds a bit dramatic, architects are dramatic, that I'd given birth to in some respects. And I just really enjoyed being there and touching the steel and whatever. Did, when you go back to Great Hall, I don't know when you've last- oh, it's gone very out.
1: emotional for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I sit there as a nobody in a big audience, watching, you know, a, a laureate speaker talk about some <laughs> amazing scientific discovery. I'm just like, <laughs> My ideas are housing this, this yeah, moment. It's very yeah, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. How special. Yeah. I just and then there's, um, there's a second part to that scheme that in the design competition, um, we had a solution for the Great Hall, but we said, actually, there's an opportunity we've found while we've been working on that to build another space that wasn't in the brief. And we called it the Balcony Room, and it connected the ceremony of the hall with the courtyard space at the back of UTS. Very grand glazed room with louvers and very high ceiling. And, um, it feels a bit like a balcony, but also it's an interior space. We put that in our design submission and the university said, oh, you guys, you guys have won the competition, but we didn't look at the balcony room. Cause it wasn't in the brief. You, you kind of broke the brief by putting that in, but you've won it just on the hall but we want you to build that because nice. we love it. <laughs> nice. So we got this extra, it was like a one and a half million dollar increase in the overall um, scope of the project and stitched the exterior space of the campus to this really deep interior of the hall.
0: I love that idea, like as architects, because we really are challenged as students to really think, you know, okay, what's this about? What does this mean? What are some ideas that could be forthcoming? And we're shocking as a result of that experience, have been told, I want you to just look at yeah, this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I can't just I, look at this. I tell students I'm teaching and clients that commission me, you're not signing me up to solve problems. You're fi- signing me up to find opportunities using the problems as a catalyst yeah. to find those opportunities. Yeah. And that's the difference between um, just getting your ideas drawn up by a drafty, Yeah, And that's where the value lies in you get an outcome which is like, Oh my God, I had not imagined this. I didn't sign you up to do this because it didn't exist as an idea, but you found this and solved all those problems yeah. through that. Yeah. yeah,
0: I love that. Uh, I want to just do a slight sidetrack into some of your other, one of your other interests that we haven't spoken about, but I think is really important as an architect to have a knowledge on and even if possible to be able to do to some level And that's your knowledge of construction, like literally the knowledge of being able to build, being on the tools, a lot of what you've done around your house, you've done yourself. And that's a really important skill set. At what point in your education or your life did you get that knowledge base? Did you, were you interested in getting that knowledge base of construction?
1: It's an interesting question. I was about to ask you where you thought, where you got the idea (laughs) that I did have that knowledge because (laughs) it's very implicit, I guess. I don't feel like I'm expertise beyond any other architect particularly, but I did, I think in the school holidays at the end of year 10 in high school, my technical drawing teacher asked if he could pay me to help him build an extension to his house over the school holidays. And I spent six weeks helping him frame up his house extension. And I learned quite a bit through that. I think through technical drawing, you're already, it's very rote learning. Um, but you're learning about what a footing is and yep. how you do termite control with ant caps and basic bearers, joists, stud walls, all that sort of basic stuff. You learn. I learnt through that, and it was more... You learn it enough to be able to represent it mm. through drawings, but you've got to know what you're representing, right? Because you can make beautiful drawings, but if, um, if they're technically needed for someone else to... Go and spend a whole lot of time and money building something. They've got to, you've got to know what you're Mm, representing. mm. Um, And then I'm not sure where I first got handy on the tools. I think my dad had a a limited number of tools in his garage when I was a kid. And that was a bit of an escape escape pod for me where I go in there and just tinker. Mm. I because we're in here and we've got a drill
0: press we've got what else do we have i can see drills uh,
1: table saw table saw um yeah we have got quite a few tools and that's something susie and i both use we go through phases but we'll build a few big big things and spend a few weeks with all the tools out yeah get dusty and then pack it up for a while
0: because the fabulous story <laughs> is once when we went surfing around the corner i won't say where um I came i dropped you home and i saw susie building your front fence yeah and that was such a special thing like on the tools quite literally and so i guess that's what i mean i think that yeah okay one of the missing components arguably today if not for a long time in architecture is this idea of architect was at one point master builder Mm. and we happened to know how to do it all but we did the design and drawings and at some point that got a little bit more muddied yeah and certainly my experience uh, growing up, if you can call it that, as an architect, I really wanted to be able to talk intelligently to the people that are the artisans, the craftspeople. And every year at, yeah. sc- at uni, we did a timber frame project, then a steel frame project, then concrete poles or whatever. And I really got into the mess of that. Mm. And I can't resolve it to a, or build it to a level of detail, finesse and skill as the builders that I get to do my projects. But I certainly could have a go. And I, I, I feel like you really are that, like some of the work you've done at your holiday house in uh, Sussex Inlet, Cardmira Swan House, you know,
1: a lot of that you've done yourself. So that's more what I mean. Yeah, I think, I, don't, I haven't really come to it thinking I want to be a more well-rounded architect. I yep. just love, love getting it. my hands dirty and yeah. getting on the tools. Yeah. I see um, opportunity to make nice things. Yep. And, you know, you start on the tools in the morning. At the end of the day, you're like, I did something today. Yeah. Whereas in architecture, you start on the drawing board. You know, sometimes like two thirds of what you draw or three quarters, you never see yeah. built. Yeah. And the stuff that does get built, you go through tumultuous processes over three, four, five years, depending yeah. on the scale. Yeah, so there's something very rewarding about yeah. just tinkering. And I've never done it to, um, you know, realize my greatest visions. It's more just Interesting. pragmatic with a design twist mm. that's in the moment in that sort of flow state of being creative on the tools. Mm. Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of architects, like you say, the concreter knows concrete better than you do. Yeah. And if you're not there on the day, they're trying to interpret your drawings, you might miss opportunities that they give mm. you mm. about how to tweak an edge detail or how to, like you forgot that there'd be a saw cut. And if you set something out slightly different, you can make a much more... Um, organized outcome or you know poetic outcome so that kind of collaborative moment it's it's hard to find that in architecture Mm. and it's actually like the way the board of architects wants you to practice is almost at arm's length Mm. from from that get mucking in on site and getting your hands dirty Mm. your insurance won't cover it Mm. your um you know you you prepare a contract and you oversee that the client and architect uh the client and builder are behaving correctly under that contract, as soon as you get in there and start, you know, pick mm. up a hammer yeah. a hammer yeah. or a saw, you're sort of breaching that, um, mm. breaching the contractual scenario. Yeah, so, for sure. I think that's why I do, do a lot around our houses. We've renovated at least six houses and never demolished and rebuilt. Mm. We're always sort of incrementally renovating, finding opportunity with mm. the structural logic of where we are mm. and just evolving it. Um and often that's budget limits. Because <laughs> architects can't build what they design for their <laughs> clients most of the time. They can't <laughs> afford it. Um
0: yeah. I, I I love that and you brought up something that made me think as well. I don't know if this has come up in your practice a lot, but I think that so many uh clients, at least in their first, you know, round, which for most of our clients it is their first round, it's their forever home. Some of them truly believe in this idea that the old is no good and it's not a great existing house, so level Mm. it and start again. Mm. And I love, and it sounds like you really love, is finding that joy, that beauty in that existing house and then fully celebrating that with an extension. Would you say a lot of the work of draw, at least for the housing front, you said there were a lot of renovation projects. It was a lot of work like that, sort of challenging
1: that subscription to new is better. Yeah, I don't remember having a lot of fights with clients where they, you know, tried to sign us up to do a new house, and we pushed back saying yep. you don't need to destroy the house you've got. But I guess there's a, I guess there's a more core ideology or philosophy behind it about sustainability, mm. that you, um, no matter what level of performance you specify in a new building, not building a new building is more sustainable mm. than, than building a new building. Mm. And I think that's a starting point, Um, obviously some old buildings perform very, very poorly Mm. and your heating and cooling costs and livability suffer, but you can tweak that a lot Mm. of the time, which is what we've done here Mm. in our house. Um, and then a good friend of mine who was a sort of professor at New South uni for a while, um, he taught me that I, I sort of said to him one day. Peter what's the best what's 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 like best practice in sustainability these days and he's like don't do anything that's best practice (laughs) and I'm like yeah yeah but I've got to do something because that's what architects do we do stuff and he's like well think of what you're designing as a means of storing materials for the next building so you don't nail and glue things you bolt and screw things Mm. and then all those parts can be disassembled Mm. or morphed and modified if the situation changes Mm. um or partially retrieved in a demolition demolition phase and those sorts of ideas um like i'm not it's not like a mantra that i Mm. always stick to but they're just in the background all Mm. the time i love that all right, let's
0: continue the history journey. I really want to get to some of the exciting things you're doing at the moment, so we might try and uh, do this quicker than the, the rest. Uh, John and you separated, went yes. different ways. Yep. And you, he took an academic
1: role in Queensland, or his partner did? Yeah. yeah. His partner, Sandra Caggio Grady, um, took a head of school role at UQ, I think. Yeah. And yep. they moved to Queensland. Yeah. And we sort of ummed an art about keeping the practice together, but it wasn't it wasn't really going to work for both of us, so mm-hmm. we split. And um, then, and from that became RAW? Became raw. RAW. Um I think that was only two and a half, three years that yeah. I practiced as RAW. That was Draw without the demanding core at the front. <laughs> backronym. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. use that. Backronym. Surgery <laughs> surgery on the original backronym. Um and I really enjoyed I really enjoyed RAW. John and I used to put a lot of energy into, um, working through things together, sometimes heated in heated ways. Um, which is good. Yeah. We used to, I mean, we were very good communicators. So even when we had arguments, we'd sort of say, yeah, arguments, arguments create, um, you know, energy and friction and that energy, like you can harness to Mm. get better outcomes. And Mm. it's like, still exhausting to have (laughs) the argument, but, (laughs) um, it's nice to know we can like, you know, reflect on it afterwards and still be good mates afterwards. But yeah, just having that autonomy in Raw was really nice. How many staff
0: at that stage?
1: I think I had three <laughs> staff for most of that. Yeah. And just ticking along, like...
0: Any milestones compared to Great Hall or...
1: That? I'm just trying to remember because the chapter after Raw was um, exhausting. Yeah. And just yeah, like like... Yeah. Kind of almost like cleared the hard drive a little bit sure, and, and sure. the end of that was a big um, mindset shift.
0: So let's, let's go into that. At Jump some, straight into that. At huh? some point <laughs> in the two and a half years where you got, you got to a point, you said, I want to work on bigger projects, institutional government projects, and I can't do this in this current setting. And so you decided to buddy up with someone.
1: Yeah, well, they approached me um, and said, look, this is a bit left field. We've been watching you and we, we like the way you practice. Um, we've seen you at a few talks and things present. Um, we'd like to offer to buy your practice and merge you into our business. And that I immediately was like, I'm so happy with Raw Architects. Like this, I'm probably the happiest I've been in 10 years, um, enjoying the clients, the work, my, my team, um, my lifestyle around that. I politely declined. And then I slept on it a few nights and was like, for like 17 years now, I've been teaching um, more urban scale projects, mm-hmm. urban design, mm-hmm. larger buildings, more complex buildings, public buildings, but I've never been able to land that sort of work, apart from the occasional Great Hall, great hall. at UTS. Never been able to land that sort of work, even with a little bit of experience in it. Um, and the merge opportunity was offering that. They, had, they, they were urban designers, they had um, lots of urban scale projects that they'd done urban design on that the promise was would would sort of roll into an architectural phase and I'd be there. They'd already have the client relationship. My architectural skills and my team would merge in and when urban design gets approved and signed off, we'd just sort of take projects over and move into architectural phase. I was a bit naive. <laughs> the reality of that was really uh, very complex. Um, there were four of us in the architectural team and some of the projects were 40 storey mm. buildings, very hard to convince a client who's used to working with Hassel, BVN and the likes um, to sign up a team of four who's just fresh in this office mm. that never offered architecture before. Mm. So that was a bit of a, an uphill battle. Um, and then sort of beyond that, there was just a big cultural clash between the way I'd practiced and um, like deeply ingrained this groove of practice Mm. over what was sort of two decades by then Mm. um, and a culture around the office and a sort of creative process to move into principal architect Mm. nationally role where there's an expectation that I'm actually not sitting down working in a three-dimensional mm. CAD space because I'm too expensive to be doing that. Which must have been so like hard. Like the somewhere. space that I'm like native, yeah. you know, that's like my pig in shit moment. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You just said that you love making stuff yeah. when you get home. Yeah.
0: Not only can you not make stuff, which is, you know, often a given, but you can't draw, you can't
1: model, you yeah. can't test, you can't do the grasshopper yeah. moments with the... So you know. my role was marketing to mm. get more work, um, trying to convert clients over, um, building a team of architects, which we interviewed you yep. for at that time, yep. back to the start of our talk. Um, and yeah, it was just, I just sort of, I got to a year in that role and had a a meeting with the CEO and said, I'm loving the opportunity here, but there's a whole lot of like broken connections and mm-hmm. things that I'd like to work through with you and, um, you know, talk to some of the other principles of the practice because, the liabilities in architecture are much greater than the liabilities in urban design. Mm. Um, the risks are higher. Um, I don't want to just be making decisions and making a call without the people who own the business and mm. you know, pay the insurance and mm. whatever. Mm. Uh, and that was sort of mixed feelings. And then the two year mark hit and I, I gave notice at that point. Um, and I was a bit sort of disillusioned by then. And we'd started thinking about moving out of Sydney at that point. Mm. Um, it was something that Susie, my life partner, had been keen to do for ages. And I'd always push back saying, I'm self-employed as an architect, don't make a lot of money living in the heart of Sydney, right at Dar- in Darlington, right near Redfern, uh, where you know the probably highest density of people signing up architects in the whole state. Mm. And if we move out of Sydney to a, a rural or coastal area, I'm gonna lose a lot of that opportunity and it'd you know, be harder to make ends meet financially. That was my concern. But by the time um, I'd finished up on the Roberts Day job, um, I was ready to, ready to throw it all in and mm. start afresh. And that's sort of what we did here. And we moved to here in Bulai in the bushfire summer, 2019 summer. So it was sort of fire and brimstone and um, disasters all around the east coast, and then moved in, started setting up our garden and our life here, built a shed that we're sitting in now, and then COVID hit, and there was sort of two years of on and off, um, you know, lockdowns and chaos and unknowns, and we we sort of had this nice little bubble mm. on a parcel of land that was that's ten times larger than the parcel of land we had in. Darlington ten times yeah wow. nine sorry nine times wow. we're on 109 square meters in Darlington and this is a thousand square meters and um, you know I'm used to being super efficient in small spaces and just having this opportunity to stretch out and have more generous spaces agoraphobia and, yeah a little bit um, but we've also We can be very community oriented here and Mm. we've had lots of public events Mm. on our property where um, locals from the neighborhood and people interested in um, gardening as a Mm. a form of sustenance on your own Mm. urban farm um, and people interested in the sort of architecture I do around that now too. Um, Much more community based and almost friends or friends of friends. Mm. Come through the place and end up becoming clients sometimes as mm. well. Very different way of practicing. To I, I love the that. And I, world.
0: I've been here in one of those what we call them open house garden display events, where people go around, and I'm, I'm super jealous again of that part of your life and that interest. This was really just monocultural lawn before you got here, right? Just yeah, a quintessential. Yeah. We tiny had one house. one tree that was the only plant on the property that yeah. wasn't grass. Yeah, and now it's you know what would you call it an exquisite i don't know urban farm you grow urban farmstead
1: is a term i've been leaning on a bit because yeah. people kind of understand that
0: a bit yeah so at what point did that passion come up i mean you've gone full circle from from lunar park to urban corridors in Parramatta to the great hall to trying to get more of that and seeing the side you know that's the unfortunate side of corporate world where you can't get your hands dirty on design drawing sketches whatever because there's an expectation that you fulfill another role at what point did the passion for gardening and permaculture come up um
1: i think in part there was a winding back um of the number of hours i do on billable work and just like saying okay susie and i need a bit of a rest and we can now afford to because we've sold out of sydney yep Uh, We're sort of settled here with much less financial pressure. Let's actually give ourselves permission to slow down. And, you know, you rebalance and instead of buying inflated price groceries at Woolworths with money that you've worked hard to earn, you plant stuff in the garden and start to get a yield out of that. Mm -hmm. And so you're sort of of horse trading between two different things. Um, But I think also like going back to something we were talking about earlier, That idea of being um, hands-on on on the tools, Mm. building things and making things. I've now, I don't even know if I thought explicitly about doing this, but I've now sort of moved into my practice as an architect being one of immersion and clients emerge out of experiencing our property here. Mm. Being friends who have eaten, you know, eaten a meal on our front deck or come to an open garden they see it and feel it Mm. before I show them a drawing. Mm. And they're already, like, they've drunk the Mm. (laughs) Kool-Aid. They're sort of like, yeah, I'm really into this and I didn't know architects did this Mm. and I didn't know, you know, living systems were part of architectural thinking. Mm. Like, water management and food and nutrient and waste processes all on one property, like closing those loops. But I can see you're doing it. Looks like a pretty good lifestyle. Um, You're obviously not working as hard and you've got sort of time to do other things you like. Um, yeah, well, let's get on board, let's do something at my house. So I've got had quite a few clients sign up or show interest through through that and it's a nice way of working. Yeah,
0: that's fantastic. There's no better authority in terms of your skill set and what you would get than showing the product in situ. It's like Yeah. I mean, In many respects, there's aspects of this that, you know, this may be an exaggeration, but you could say are comparable to the emotional uplift you get from experiencing Ronchamp. Like, your clients... I was just thinking that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like, when you're taught architecture in architecture school, there's a whole sequence of images that get made from the very beginning of a project to after it's finished. And you learn as an architecture student that that's... Like, your expertise becomes conjuring up the image, producing it, convincing other people that it's the right image, and then moving on to the next image. So the first one's like a napkin sketch of your concept. Then you've got the images you produce for council that the neighbors have to give the nod and the council have to say, ticks the boxes. Then you've got all the imagery for the builder where you want them to not overprice it, not underprice it. Meanwhile, these other things start happening on site, which are kind of representations of the image, and then you get your professional photographer in to create new images Mm. at the end, then you put Mm. them on your website and Mm. that's your marketing image. Mm. So there's this whole kind of, and that's how I've practiced in parallel to the other life of just immersing myself in making and doing. And I think now those two have converged. Mm. And instead of using those series of images to sell my services or skills or interests to other people, I think they come and feel it you know rather than rather than comparing that architect's images mm-hmm. to these architect's images they're like well I had a nice meal at Adam's house and had a walk around the garden on the open day and wow it's like you know the house doesn't look amazing in terms of publishability or anything like that but it just felt good and then my competitor is building a website with professional photography mm-hmm. and convincing clients through drawings yeah. That's fantastic. I don't know I, how you teach that to students though, because it's hard to get to that moment. That no. Point. It's taken a lot of time.
0: No, but like... You a need class- runs on the board. Absolutely. <laughs> but even if, if, if without runs on the board necessarily, you could take them to a public space. You could take them to the Great Hall. You could take them to the Opera House. But By I, other I, architects. Yeah. And, and sort of be like, okay, yeah. let's... Yeah. I love that because what it's reminding me of is, I think in, in current society... Uh, Simon Sinek talks about this once in his podcast that people don't want to buy things necessarily. They want to buy experiences. And there's no better way of showcasing the experience you'll get from an Adam Russell, now we didn't mention this, the latest incarnation is saltbush projects than going and seeing one in situ. And I, I certainly subscribe to that myself. I've tried to have completed projects where I bring clients through a completed mm-hmm. project mm. in that very narrow window mm. between when it's no longer a construction site. And the, <laughs> and the family moved hasn't moved in. in. <laughs> and the family hasn't moved in because yeah. ultimately, as much as we struggle with this, it's not our project. It's their project. It's yeah. their house. Yeah. It's their yeah. space. Yeah. So You need to get sign off of that. That's such a great story, though. I love all those connections. Uh, I want to go back because we promised that we would uh,
1: diverge quite regularly to surfing, and incidentally, we haven't. We haven't, have we? <laughs> I Can't believe it. You know, today there's a massive swell running. <laughs> it, I was down at Sandon Point taking photos from seven to eight am. Yeah, yeah. And uh,
0: yeah, it's so I want to, sweet. I want to talk about that because with this move, no longer like. It's, it's this incredible cycle. No longer are you commuting anywhere near the two hours that you were from Hunter's Hill to DY. Mm. It's what? A two-minute walk to mm. your local break? Like, yeah. that is every surfer's dream. You're not having to think, do I have enough petrol in the car? Can I do this window? i Do I have gonna... permission from the family? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to go for a curious walk. Yeah. And I think another thing about Adam that's important to note in this episode is that as we get the background of uh, a semi semi regional Australia of birds and the like. I don't know if the microphones will pick that up. But Adam and this sense of community and this level of engagement you have with individuals about really developing a community, be it architecture, be it in the garden setting. But in the surf setting, we, Adam and I, are on this WhatsApp group chat called Wave Radar. And it's you'd call it an amateur coastal watch notice. You know, <laughs> we're telling each other what's on, what's happening, where the waves are. Uh, Generally speaking, everyone, or I think everyone actually is, a surfboard rider. I'm the lone bodyboarder. We've got another friend who does dabble in bodyboarding a little bit. There's a particular wave near us that is more geared towards bodyboarding on a good day than surfboard riding. But Adam developed that community. Adam created that group chat. You are the creator of Wave Radar. And we have these little get-togethers in Adam's shed with you know projections of waves and videos. <laughs> it's every teenager's dream to imagine that you can go somewhere and you know even better, have Adam take a photo of you in the surf that day and look at it on the screen. It's this incredible thing. But you have had a little bit of tragedy in regards to surfing in the last six to eight months? Nine no, months ago. Nine months ago, I what was, happened?
1: I was jumping off the rocks at my local break and when the waves are big, it's very hard to paddle out from the, from the inside and it's, um, it's easier to, if you get the timing right, to jump off the rock shelf at the very back and get to the waves that way. On this particular day, I already had two friends in the surf. There were about 30 people out. It was a very good uh, swell, great morning. And I was very eager to get out, frothing, if you will. Yeah, got to use <laughs> uh, those terms. As, I, didn't, as a... I didn't take the time to do a few stretches and watch a few sets of waves come through and understand exactly what was happening. I jumped in and I got caught between a rock and a hard place and um, Literally. got slammed on my bum on a rock shelf and my L1 vertebrae burst. So it's a broken back, which I found out three days later in the hospital overhearing nurses talk about it um so
0: sorry, just to dissect that for people that don't surf you're paddling out a wave crashes in front of you you tried to get under it and it picked yeah, you up and pushed you back yeah, down onto a wave
1: play. a wave um loomed up in front of me i went to duck dive it which is a technique we use to duck under waves when they're breaking and my knuckles hit the rock and it was a flat rock shelf and i threw my board to the side turned my back to the looming wave and it dumped me on my bum on the rock shelf Uh, and then I had a 10 minute odyssey of I couldn't duck dive anymore because it hurt too much putting weight on my knee through my twisting my spine so I had to paddle out to sea and around the whole lineup of 30 surfers and big waves and come in at a safe spot uh, further around further around the um, bay and then I as soon as I stood up on the shore, I realized how injured I was. I, could, I nearly passed out with the pain. Um, I did some breathing, which I've never really done like focused breath work until this moment. It just came to me. I, I lay down actually on a, on a ledge for five minutes and did some strange breathing to try and calm, my, calm myself down, my mind mainly. And then I picked up my board and walked up a flight of stairs because there, no, there were no people around that I could seek help through. Walked up a flight of stairs I uh, got to a bit of grass and I could see people getting ready to surf and I, I lay down. And next thing I remember someone waking me up or stirring me and saying, do you need an ambulance? Are you okay? And I said, yeah, can you call an ambulance? I'm fine.
0: How much time do you think passed between you? Uh, your...
1: From when I lay on the grass, just a couple of minutes. But from, from when I had the accident to when I got to the grass, it was probably 15 minutes. I sat up in the surf a few times and talked to my friends as I was paddling back in and I sort of sat up and said, oh, I've really hurt myself. I don't think I'll be catching waves today. Sorry. <laughs> Cause sort of planned to meet each other and we knew the waves were going to be good. Yeah.
0: And from then who took you to hospital? Did you take yourself?
1: Or... Oh no, an ambulance came. Right. Um, they gave me two green whistles to get me to my feet and I walked to the ambulance cause they couldn't get a stretcher across the muddy grass. And then I was in emergency for three days.
0: Three days. And then
1: I was home on a lot of, uh, opioid painkillers for a month in a brace for three months in bed, which was a real mind bender (laughs) for someone who's quite active and outdoorsy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what's beautiful
0: about this story is true to form and what we said, you know, Adam feeling like, okay, here's some limitations in the way I produce my architecture, the reality of architectural production. At some point you said, I need to still have connection to the ocean, albeit without surfing. So at what point, I'll let you say what you did, but at what point did you say, I'm going to reconnect with the ocean via, you tell that story.
1: Yeah. Um, so I was 14 weeks in bed. I, the biggest trip I did was to the letterbox in that 14 weeks. And that was a real mindfuck, And I actually taught myself about stocks and shares and started trading on the stock market (laughs) to get my adrenaline because I was used to surfing waves every day. It's a real, Michael would know, you you get in flow state, uh, you get euphoric moments of adrenaline rushes and the rest of the day is going to be quite easy because Mm. (laughs) you've had this great moment. Mm. I wasn't getting those daily moments, my Mm. daily fix on dopamine or whatever. Um, So I started playing the stock market right when the stock market started crashing really heavily this year. And I lost a little bit of money, quite a bit of money, Um, (laughs) but got through, got through those 14 weeks, wasn't spending money anywhere else. Um, And then I... Still working though? Still doing... Oh, I was sort of... Most of my clients at the moment are family and friends. So I was very comfortable telling people, I've broken my back. I'm not quite sure what recovery is looking like. It's really long. Surgeon said, I won't be surfing for a year. Um, It's just going to take some time. And I hope you can be patient with the work I'm doing with you. And everyone was fine with it. So I was doing emails and sorting people out from bed. I I couldn't sit in front of a computer and work. Mm. And then um, once I was out of the brace, I found myself going down to the beach every day and just watching people surf Mm. and I'd go down um, first thing in the morning because I wake up in pain and just want to get out and walk and sort of put the pain aside uh, by doing something else and I find myself on the rock shelf with my iPhone photographing friends or you know the surf community that I've become part of and one thing led to another and I took my camera down then I bought a, a zoom lens and then I upgraded both the camera and the zoom lens to a semi-professional outfit. And now I'm, um, running a little side hustle (laughs) of surf photography and still trying to keep at it, even though I'm back in the water surfing myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that really, um, just gave me a great distraction where I felt like I was part of the surf community. Mm. Um, I read the waves the way I would if I was about to surf them. Mm. So the photography comes really easily. I know, when people are going to be in certain parts of the wave and um and capture that i've met a few other professional surf photographers down on the rock shelf who've taught me things and i've got a little bit of a um you know friendship developing there and mentorship in that space um and i post a lot on instagram Snapstoke is the handle if anyone wants to look but um through instagram all the all the little grommets and um surfers around the place now ask me if i got their barrel today yeah. <laughs> and ask me when i'm going to be down photographing again so they can get the timing yeah. right and i've suddenly got this sort of little following of people who of course you do. want their surfing validated <laughs> through my photos which yeah. is which is lovely <laughs> it's
0: uh, we were talking about this with a friend a, a week ago two weeks ago at his birthday party a friend of ours george who does double in bodyboarding and i see him at, at a particular location surfers are so vain like we really it's like you, you don't and it's such a split second experience you know someone said statistically that the actual time spent on a wave is less than five percent of your time surfing yeah. and you, you and i we've been out two three hours you know you think about that statistically you go wow what, what are you guys doing uh, but for someone to capture that and for you to have it on your wall and remember that moment is so special. And when uh, I've been uh, away with friends and someone's, you know, takes a camera, <laughs> it's <always laughs> like, who's going to take photos? And the surf is fantastic. It's like, not me, not me, not me. And it ends up being no one. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's such a hole to fill. And I love that you've done it in a community sense. And
1: it's grown far bigger yeah. than you
0: would have appreciated
1: yeah. when you first and started. I'm already watching the forecast for swell anyway, because I'm surfing again. And if I surf for a couple of hours, I'll be tired and hungry. I'll come in and eat. And if the waves are still on, I'll often go back down with my camera. Uh, If it's late in the afternoon, I might even take a beer and stand on the rocks, Mm. watch the sunset, take some photos and have a have a beer. And then the day is complete.
0: Do you think any of the photography stuff, like, would you ever dabble in taking photos of your own projects or it's a different world, it's a different yeah, type yeah, of Yeah, yeah, no, totally.
1: I've done that in the past. Um, I photographed the Great Hall weekly with a semi-professional lens um, and, yeah, even through uni, I learnt photography um, at uni and found a dark room in the corridors halfway up the tower at UTS that was unused and found the janitor and asked if he had a key for it and my mate Simon Anderson and I had access to a dark room in the tower for a couple of years the janitor even ordered chemicals for our um, processing of film so I've, I've done photography for a long time but never in this sort of disciplined way mm. um, I enjoy it and yeah I'm planning to photograph some of my projects nice they won't be like your Brett Boardman style photos yeah. <laughs> they'll be a bit grittier and Yeah, but it's different. Yeah, it's It's different. different. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I do enjoy it.
0: Do you, um, just kind of to slowly wrap all of this up, you learn to surf and you're engaged in surfing as an understanding of, let's call it the environment, the world, landmass, so many things in surfing, as, as we know, have to come into play for it to be a good surf, tide, Swell direction, period, wind, yeah. crowd. Like yeah. it's such a tricky sport in that respect compared to, I'm not going to say physically, but in terms of saying today I'm going to go for a surf for all the things to line up compared to indoor soccer or mm. basketball yeah. or tennis, yeah. whatever. Yeah, uh, That doesn't mean that one is harder than the other. It's just hard for everything to fall into place. I'm interested, did that understanding of nature and patterns and anything, do you think that played out in your appreciation for land and space in architecture at all?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think they're all interrelated. Um, I think I've always been out, out in the environment as my happy place. Even when I was little, it was tree houses and Mm -hmm. playing in the local bushland and in the river and so on. Um, but I also feel like in the moment when you're surfing in this, complex series of conditions where everything's sort of, you know, you're really just in this split second moment. You're absolutely got to be in a flow state. Mm. You can't plan a wave. I'm going to do three turns mm. and then get yeah. a barrel and then do another three turns, <laughs> yeah. right? You're, it happens. And you happen to be <laughs> happening at the same time. Yeah. To me, designs a lot like that. Yeah. Like you sit down with a site, a client, some problems, some opportunities, you don't know where you're going to end up. You start making some lines, on paper, you overlay that, and you just get into this headspace and a flow state where your um, creative juices are there. You're, you, you can switch off the rest of the world almost when you're really, really in, in, ingrained in that sort of designing moment. Um, they're quite similar to me, mm. and I think that's the pleasure of being a designer is when you do get those moments, mm. like with surfing. Mm. It's five percent of being an architect <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. You know, when you're actually up on a wave. <laughs> surfing it yeah. or you're actually doing that flow state designing. Yeah. But it's what you live for. Yeah. You know, that's if you say, what do you do as an architect? Like I'm a space agent. I create spaces from nothing and imagine them and conjure them and, and then convince people. And then, and then they happen. Um, it's not like, Oh, I write contracts and I review reports <laughs> yeah. and I make lots of phone calls. That's not yeah. what an architect does, but yeah. you do. It. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I think you also hit something quite special there. If you're not ready that moment, the set comes yeah. to turn, angle it properly, watch what the lip's doing, go in the barrel, avoid the barrel, whatever. If you're not ready, if you're not on, you know, you don't get a moment to say, let me catch my breath. Mm. Let me just double check this. Yeah. I want to just go to the bathroom. And I think it's similar for better or worse in architecture. If you're not ready that moment, the creative spark is ignited and the opportunity presents itself, Yes, you might forever lose it. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's And a, sometimes it comes in the shower or yeah, in the middle of the yeah, night or yeah. when you're driving down a freeway. ah, yep. like, oh, suddenly those, those things all sort of click. And yep. I, need to, I need to now go into a productive state of testing and, yep. and you know, iterations. Yeah, and, yeah. absolutely. So uh,
0: there's a circle here that just to wrap up on in terms of the ment, I don't think this is a word, but the mentee becoming the mentor. You had some great mentors in your time. And now you very much are a mentor to quite a few people. Can you talk a little bit
1: about that role? Yeah, I think um, I've actually been talking to psychologists about this <laughs> over the last couple of years. But my, I'm the eldest of six kids. And the first four came within five years. And I think as a child, I spent a lot of time actually caring for my closest siblings, while the youngest ones were being cared for by my parents.
0: What's the age gap between
1: you and the 11 youngest? years between yep. the youngest and the oldest. Yep. And I think maybe just, I became a bit hardwired to get a lot of satisfaction out of um, helping, helping people and being sort of present and patient. Um, and I think that was first started with my younger siblings. And then probably when I started tutoring in first year at UTS, when I got back from my Europe trip, um, I had patience. I could I could help students feel like they were drawing an, an idea out of their own mind and and help them find confidence in that. And I really enjoy doing that. I get a lot out of it. Um, and I think that yeah. And then and then people who have mentored me. I probably mentioned a few of them. Um, Mark Willett, um, another guy. Jack Taylor, who I worked with in draw and raw phases on um, quite a lot of medium density, mixed use buildings. He and I are quite opposite. He'd bring jobs in and sort of say, he's 15 years older than me. He'd bring jobs in and say, um, got this amazing job. It's on a beautiful site in Freshwater or uh, Mossman, um, all ready to go. Clients signed up. Let's split the DA fee 50-50. You do all the design work. I'll wrangle all the consultants. and uh council and you can be the front guy in council to help get it through because you're good at talking about your own ideas (laughs) and like you know that was a beautiful kind of uh, form of mentorship in a more of a collaborative sense rather than senior junior Mm. um in a way but um and i I think i probably taught him a few things about design along the way and i certainly learned a hell of a lot from him about buildability and construction and Mm. developer client management and stuff Mm. like that Mm. um yeah, and then I just I just naturally have people in my life that turn to me now and then for advice, and I think they know I'm happy to give it, and sometimes it's useful. It's <laughs> always been useful and, for me, and um, I enjoy doing that, and I love making time for it, and it's an opportunity. Like for me, they're friendships mm. um, more so than you know a formal mentor mentee in a way, and then there's nothing more rewarding than seeing people you've mentored down in the past flourishing in their mm. career or whatever they're doing 10 mm. years later mm. it's it's very nice feeling to have are you still teaching at all not this semester but um last year i was teaching yeah i taught at newcastle uni and western sydney uni second semester last year I was a little bit i jumped the gun a little bit with my back mm. pain mm. so it was quite a quite a lot of pain management uh, in the mix there. And, uh, it was probably, it was very fulfilling, but a bit stressful as well when pain got a bit hard to handle. Mm, mm. But, um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be teaching forever (laughs) ongoing. I think. Yeah. It just, it just lands in my lap.
0: I think with me, I don't know if you find this with teaching just on that 5% topic, you might have a week where that 5% is not necessarily there because you're working so hard on chasing people up to deliver on certain things yeah. or following up calls and seeing how someone's going with X, Y, and Z. And so the, let's call it the purest form of sit down, sketch design, model making, whatever, that's maybe not occurring on some weeks, but you go to university and particularly design studio, you've got what, 20 students all asking for commentary mm. then and there yeah. on their design stuff. So I feel yeah. for me, I'm sure you're similar it keeps my creative design mind oh, absolutely active and healthy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, right when I started teaching, I stood up in front of a room of students. I was like, shit, I've got to say stuff <laughs> that I truly believe or at least be convincing enough they think I believe it that's interesting and mm. useful. And you suddenly have to frame your own thoughts and mm. position much more clearly, a bit more black and white because you've got to say actual words in front of actual people. Yeah. As <laughs> opposed to you know, a sole trader sitting in an office all their career and only reporting to a council and clients mm. on things. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very different. And you know, I'm I'm a very warts and all sort of teacher. I'm like, this is hard yards. You're not going to have joy moments every day. There's you're not going to earn huge money, but this is how I find passion in it.
0: But when the joy managers are there, they're bloody special. It's oh, they're like, good. How many barrels have you come out of in the surf? But when you get one and you come out, yeah. you're desperately looking for someone like yeah. Adam to have taken a photo of it or a video of it. Like, yeah. But they're, they're, they're super special.
1: And I'm loving having, um, like if I'm having not much joy in architectural practice, which every architect experiences that, bad weeks or quiet Just weeks. Because everyone
0: on every job does. Weeks yeah.
1: where you're doing admin rather than design. Yeah. yeah. I go surfing or pick up the guitar and I get, you know, I have a rounded life now, a well-rounded life and those other things, yeah, just keep, keep me ticking along. Yeah. We'll probably run
0: out of time to talk about music. I think we might leave that for part two when you've had, uh, you know, I came here today and Adam was playing some stuff on his loop pedal. So he's going to have some time between (laughs) podcast interviews to work up his, uh, guitar playing prowess, which I'm sure will be coming And we've got a colleague who has a, is it, it's like an outdoor shed, right? That is CLT.
1: Yeah. Um, I call it more a architecture slash music
0: studio. Yeah. Yeah. But it's separate from the house. It's separate from the house. Yeah, yeah. 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 And we're going to converge on that. Maybe have a live recording there. We'll partly have interpretive songs or something. Who knows? The sky's the limit. But I look forward to that on the next one. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Things that... Projects you're working on at the moment or anything necessarily?
1: Um, we didn't touch on co-housing, which okay. is a type of project yep. um, I'm pursuing at the moment. It's probably the only type of project I'm really pursuing actively. Other things just come in the door. What does co-housing mean? Co-housing is a, a deliberate form of housing. It's, it's not your sort of um, single household housing. It's multiple groups of people. Yep. Uh, living on on the one property and the design process happens with all those people Mm -hmm. engaged or as much as possible Um, and for me it's a nice triangulation of sustainability housing issues around affordability and access to housing um, community um, and food systems but I think we should talk about that in our next
0: session. Fair enough I'm sorry that I missed that we have spoken a lot we're at the one and a half hour mark and yeah so we've got some great content for the next episode we've got the co-housing stuff and you've got some active projects of co-housing there's a couple one in of Blue active Mountains projects yep yeah well that that'll be certainly special and we'll intertwine some musical breaks performed by adam and and me potentially for for that one adam thank you so much for giving up your time today always a pleasure michael i love our yarns yeah and uh thank you for listening adam we'll see you on the next one see ya thanks okay that's a wrap thank you again for listening thank you adam again for contributing your time it was a great discussion you could see that we had a lot more to actually talk about i look forward to part two where we share or adam shares what he's doing in the co-housing field until then if you want to work with adam his uh, website is saltbushprojects.com. Apologies to Adam, I forgot to mention that in the recording. It is also in the show notes. So that's saltbushprojects.com. His Instagram handle is saltbush_projects. That's saltbush_projects for the Instagram handle. And if you want to look at his surf photography, that's Snap Stoke. Adam mentioned that in the episode. One word: Snap stoke s-t-o-k-e all right thank you for listening if you enjoyed the episode please share it leave a comment or a review subscribe it really does help until next time thank you for listening to what is and what could be with michael clark architect